Welcome to Cosmophonia. I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And today we are giving you a quick and dirty introduction to the quadrivium. Quadrivium. Okay, so we're now a few episodes into this thing. In fact, four. I, <laughs> I believe you. And it seems like we've all just assumed that music and astronomy are things that one would talk about in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. But this idea had to start somewhere, right? Ooh. I one would think it. I mean, it didn't start with us. No, we did not invent this. We we didn't even we didn't even invent the podcast about this. No, no. Um, there have been a few. Yeah, but um, but yeah, but we figured that at this point in our little development, we should probably check in with the source of this whole concept. Mm-hmm. And that is a little thing we like to call the, the quadrivium. quadrivium. <laughs> So quad's got a four in it, mm-hmm. and then there's the rivium. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, actually, <laughs> speaking of that, we did actually plan this out so that the quadrivium would be our fourth topic, um, because it has the the word quad in it. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, since we accidentally ended up going too long on our initial episode, this is now going to be our fifth episode. However, there is still a secret number thing embedded in that, and I figured out that it's the Fibonacci sequence. Remember that? This is a Fibonacci... It's the... What are the oh, first... it's simultaneously the fourth and the fifth? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. Great. Great. And that is perfectly apt for what we're going to be talking about, because the quadrivium is the ancient and medieval... Uh, number arts yeah and like and you said ancient and medieval because it's it's both it's yes not, <laughs> it's not that the medieval is ancient it's like literally from way back and also way way backer yes yes <laughs> this idea stuck around for a long long time and uh and weirdly continues to have a lot of like cultural currency today yeah. yeah, which we'll maybe get into later. Probably, because spoiler alert: liberal arts comes from <gasps> all that, all of that, <laughs> plus the trivium, which yeah. is the language arts. Of course. Yeah, so there are seven. Yeah, so uh, yeah. this, um, I, I think, a lot of this can be traced back to, say, Pythagoras, um, the ancient Greek mathematician and scholar. Um, so around. What is that? The, oh, like what? A long time ago, like the fifth, fifth century uh, BC or something. Yeah. Uh, so a long time ago, you might know Pythagoras from the Pythagorean theorem. Um, so he was very influential in math. But there is a um, there's a legend. Should we talk about the legend? Well, should we maybe first say yeah, what we the quadri- talk- let's yeah, say we what should. the quadrivium yeah, actually we should, is? We should. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to say it or should I? Oh, I, I I can do it. Okay. And then you can tell us about legends. Okay. Okay. So 
Well, yeah, so we mentioned that the quadrivium and the trivium together make up this assemblage of the seven liberal arts, which we mostly understand now as the topics one would need to learn about and know about in order to be a free person. That's the liberal in the liberal arts. So mm -hmm. the trivium, which we're not going to talk about today, were the rhetorical arts. Um, so everything having to do with speech uh, and word. Um, but the quadrivium were the number arts. And they are four in number. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, arithmetic is the study of pure number. Geometry is the study of number in space. Music is thought of as the study of number in time. And astronomy was thought of as the combination of all of those, number in space and time simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so yeah, so that's the four of them. Arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. So, uh-oh, music and astronomy, they're together from all the way back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's those that's those are the parts of the quadrivium. Yay. Okay. Yeah. And when I first heard about this, I was just completely flabbergasted. And I was like, music is a number? What? <laughs> how, how does this make any sense? And um, it's because this kind of study of music as number, so in the sense of like a school subject or something that you learn when you're becoming educated, was not the way that we learn about music in school today. So like if you are going to the Jacobs School of Music to study music, this is not what they would have been studying back in the day. So at Jacobs Mu School of Music, you're learning how to play an instrument yeah. you're learning how to sing you're learning how to compose you're learning this and that of the practical aspects of playing music right this is not what they were doing it was a very different uh, it was a very separate kind of way of studying music yeah. right and fun fact the Jacob School of Music is where we both work. Yes. Um, <laughs> so that was not an arbitrary example. Yes, but because we both work here, students do kind of learn about this well, because we make them. Yeah, they, <laughs> when they take our classes, they learn about this. Um, but no, but it's true. I mean, the the you know the the idea of the liberal arts at some point transitioned away from. The, the this kind of classical foundation of quadrivium and trivium. And, I mean, that transition begins really over the course of the 1700s. Um, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution brings with a, a lot of changes in ideas about the role of education and how, how people should be taught, what people should be taught. So even though we have the idea of the liberal arts still around, it's been quite transformed, though not an accident that a lot of liberal arts colleges still maintain departments in music and astronomy. That's not, that's also not an accident. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but you know, in, in a lot of modern large universities, so much of the goal is professional training and music. Uh, the conservatory tradition especially was, was, has, has, has long been predicated on the notion of we are training professional musicians to be practitioners. And that also coincides with the fact that music theory, as we talk about it today, was kind of like, I don't want to say non-existent for a while, but had slipped from also it's kind of this the meaning of music theory, if that term even applies, to its use in the context of the ancient quadrivium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, uh, the way I think about music theory is learning about 
we're studying how to understand pieces of music, either specific pieces of music or pieces of music as groups. However, in the ancient and medieval way of looking at music in the quadrivium, music or elements of music are used as tools for understanding the cosmos. Yeah. Right. So this is the point of the quadrivium is to understand the order of the universe. Right. Because it was taken for granted. It was really believed by many people that uh, that the, the universe, the cosmos was inherently ordered and had a kind of beauty to it. And that all of this order was governed by number, was governed by proportions that you could see manifest in all of these different areas, in pure mathematics, in space, in time, in in acoustics. This is really where where the music part comes in. And, and also, of course, in astronomy, in charting the movement of the stars and the planets. Yeah. And I, I think we should probably talk a little bit about what we mean by music as a numerical thing. Mm -hmm. I mean... Uh, acoustics is certainly part of it, and but it's also just the idea that it, when you have any two musical events, pitched events at least, right? Just this being a thing that comes out of out of like Greece, right, and then is developed throughout European history. It's and not of, only European, but actually, I mean, it's remarkable. I've been teaching an early music class just to see like how the cultures in Europe and in uh, the Middle East and North years, Africa, yeah. Yeah. they're all just like very, very, they share a lot in terms of science, in terms of thinking, in terms of yeah. even music and all sorts of things. So um, it, it's really quite a prevalent idea that music and astronomy are, are connected. Yeah. Well, I was going to say at some point, at some point it was going to come up. It's like the, the quadrivium is the, is like, I think of it as like the European version of this. But mm -hmm. I mean, there are, are world origin stories from all over the world that involves sound precipitating the formation of the universe we we we, we could do many episodes on yeah. on on like music of the spheres philosophies and mythologies around oh, the world yes. but i was gonna say no but we should talk about how is music number and i i, I think the the probably the most simple way to think about it is just i i was I, we got on this whole thing because i was saying how pitch you know this this idea of the quadrivium assumes a pitched music right it doesn't it doesn't deal with solely rhythmic effects for example um and people began to really really concentrate on when you go like let's say up a scale from one to two well what is it to go from one to two like what actually is that relationship and that gives you a proportion in frequencies right but then all of a sudden, once you start to ask, make problems about even the most basic building blocks, when you fast forward through the, net, the subsequent several hundred years of musical development in Europe and you start ending up with counterpoint and you have musical different musical lines sounding at the same time, you don't just have one followed by two. You can have one and two happening simultaneously, which I can't do with my voice, but you get the idea, <laughs> right? And all of a sudden you have proportional relationships that unfold in time, right? Like if you hold one note and move another note against it, all of a sudden you've created a shift in relationships that thanks to the ear, we register as this beautiful thing, as this harmonious relationship, right? And mm -hmm. it's a harmonious relationship based on 
what for a long time people clung to as simple, simple proportional relationships. That one to two is a really good example because for the longest time, people insisted that the ratio of those two pitches was nine to eight. Mm -hmm. And nine to eight is a pretty simple ratio when you think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a lot simpler than like 700,241.7 over like... Point zero zero five eight nine. Just as an example, yeah, <laughs> right. Or, or actually, like even closer to home than that is, <laughs> like when the system of of tuning that we use today, twelve tone equal temperament, is is based on irrational proportions. It's the square root of there's a square root involved in in determining those. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So back in the day, right, the idea of simple proportional relationships uh, was was a, a kind of integral part of musical thinking and musical language. Mm -hmm. So you were going to tell us about the legend. Yeah, all right. So um, this is where supposedly this whole idea of music and math being expressions of the same thing came from. Um, At least when you ask anyone from the Middle Ages onward or before that, um, they're always going to tell you the legend of how Pythagoras discovered the harmonic ratios. And the story goes that he's walking down the road in a town by this blacksmith's shop, and he notices that the ringing of the hammers that that are hammering some stuff on a couple different anvils have a beautiful harmonious sound and that sound i don't remember the exact ratio but i think it was a fifth and so he goes up and looks at the hammers and he notices that one of the hammers is exactly two-thirds the size of the other hammer a perfect ratio of whole numbers small whole numbers and he determined from that that Um, This is the proportion that creates a fifth. And then from that, he determined um, that, say, an octave is one to two, and so on. All of the intervals can be expressed as ratios of whole numbers. Now, sidebar to the myth, this is not the way it works in (laughs) physics land. (laughs) Hence, we refer to it as a myth. But it's a good one, mm-hmm. and it turns out that those number things, whether they are reflected in the reality of hammers or not, it turns out is actually real-ish, right? The ratio of two to three, if we're talking about the frequency of notes, actually does create a perfect fifth. Um, so he, he got himself on the right track. So that so, so yeah, so, so it's kind of neat to see how we got numbers into music together. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's really exciting to think about how the quadrivium recognizes music the like like music as both this theoretical construct of proportions but also as an art right like there's an understanding that you will take these ratios and you will create things with them and those things will have embedded in them these very deep relationships that unfold in unique ways in each piece and that's part of what makes music interesting to the mind of the liberal artist Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about music and number, but how does this relate to astronomy, Gabe? Oh, well, I I think the, 
I mean, I think it's a little bit like what I just said. Like, you, music unfolds in time, right? But that's still something that you have to imagine in your mind in a way, right? Like, mm-hmm. when you hear a piece of music and you can have an understanding of relationships between different voices and counterpoint and harmony and whatnot. But it's a very different thing when you see it actually play out in the sky, right? Because there, you, if you go out every night and look up at the sky and you see the moon and you see whichever planets are visible, you will see how that changes from night to night with your eyeballs, mm-hmm. right? And you see also how the constellations shift over the course of the year, right? It's a very, it's a visual thing where at a glance, right, you have this sense of changing relationships over time. So all of that talk of proportions can apply in just the same way when you're looking at the relationships between them in the sky, except you're actually it's not in your mind. You don't have to like use a whole lot of extra apparatus to describe the, the spatial relationships between these things. So you're seeing proportions in terms of the rates at which they move, but you're also seeing complex spatial relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in that way, there's a pretty deep connection between the sort of intellectual machinery of music as number and the intellectual machinery of space number in space and time right this astronomy thing mm-hmm. yeah I, uh, I I was reading this really wonderful book uh, a modern book um, about the quadrivium and it's just called the quadrivium but it's a combination I think of six different books it has a chapter on music a chapter on on um, patterns in astronomy or in at least viewing the sky and one example that I just looked at that was very interesting to me was that over the course of eight Earth years and 13 Venus years, if you trace the pattern that Venus traces across the sky, it will create this really beautiful pattern uh, that looks kind of like a spirograph that in the middle it looks like a five-pointed star or a flower or something like that. And interestingly enough, according to the next page on this in this book, um, Venus rotates during that period of time twelve times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and this which, is, yeah, which uh, means that that ratio, the twelve to the eight, twelve to eight, is similar to the ratio that creates a fifth. Yeah. The book is cute about this because this section, this section of the Quadrivium book, but the little one is called a, was it a book of coincidence? A little book of coincidence. coincidence. You know, because it's kind of cute that it works out this way. But what is, what is actually quite serious is this, the, the phenomenon of orbital resonances, Mm. um, which is one of my most favorite things in all of astrophysics. So thank you, Professor Elmgreen in college. We we study orbital resonances in the context of galaxy structure, but also in the context of ring systems, like Saturn's rings have resonances. Uh, resonances define the significant 
borders and structure of the asteroid belt, the idea being that in all of these complex orbiting systems, you have different things rotating at different rates. And when those rotations have proportional relationships to other rotations, magic happens. So like in galaxies, um, we have this phenomenon where the disk of the galaxy is rotating at a certain velocity, but then the spiral arms rotate at a different velocity because they're like a wave moving through the disk. So there are places in the galaxy where the wave is moving at twice the speed of the disk or places where it's moving at half the speed. We call those the Lindblad resonances. <laughs> and those are the places that define actually the ends of spiral arms. And in the solar system... Um, the asteroid belt has gaps in it, like places where there are relatively fewer asteroids, and those are called the Kirkwood gaps, and they're all resonances with where there's a proportional relationship between the orbital period of the asteroids and the orbital period of Jupiter. So, like, magic happens when there are these proportional relationships. Now, some of these things, Lindley resonances and the Kirkwood gaps, these are not things that Pythagoras would have been thinking about, but... This thing like the Venus proportion, or the the very nearly beautiful, well, it is beautiful, but the very nearly idealist, ideal proportion, uh, these are the kinds of things that one notices when one studies astronomy as an you know, an ancient or medieval astronomer, <laughs> or even, well, not even that old, like even through Kepler, that was Kepler's whole thing. Mm -hmm. At some point, we'll do a whole thing about Kepler, mm -hmm. right? But his harmonic law is called that in part because he started, he was looking for beautiful proportional relationships, albeit more complicated ones than Pythagoras was willing to deal with. But mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So mm -hmm. the long and the short of it, <laughs> I guess, being that there's an awful lot of musical thinking that goes into the foundations of modern astronomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, this idea has had some lasting power because people still talk about, like, the harmony of the spheres, the music of the spheres, even though on the surface, it doesn't seem like modern astronomy has anything to do with music or music has anything to do with astronomy, but definitely deep down in there, you can find, can find things. That actually reminds me, there's an article by Peter Pesek and a co-author who I can't remember right now, I think, mm -hmm. called Pythagorean Longings. Mm. And uh, the article talks about kind of this, the influence of this idea, at least in part in actual scientific practice, but also in popular discourse, like the idea that modern scientific research still wants for this harmonic beauty to exist, mm. right? Like where we still search for this, like, of course, there should be these beautiful, simple, harmonious relationships between physical phenomena. Mm. So it definitely still holds sway. I think the, you know, the day-to-day the -day work of science has kind of drifted. I don't know that there are too many scientists who like go to work every day saying, I want to find the beauty in the relationships. I think it's, you know, you spend a lot more time thinking about like, oh, I got to reduce this data. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but uh, you know, among astronomers that I've met, at least, I think, you know, a lot of people become astronomers nowadays because they're attracted to the beauty of these things. Mm. You know, astronomy strikes me as a particularly 
aesthetically minded science, right? Because what is your data? Your data is beautiful pictures of these things. And, you know, I know for myself, I can't speak for all astronomers, but I know part of why I got interested in astronomy was because I loved how when you look at a, an astronomical image, you're seeing both a beautiful object with amazing relationships, but you're also seeing the you're you're seeing at a glance the physics of it. You know, like when you train yourself in how to interpret an astronomical image, you're training yourself to see how the physics is happening, which is a really that that is a really kind of you know that's a there's a there's an artistic motivation I think behind that. Hmm. Yeah. And I think this can work conversely, too, because at least many musicians that I know, if you ask them, can music communicate something about the universe that is unable to be communicated in other ways, they would probably say yes. Like, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what that is, but it is true that our experience of music is, while similar to other things, um, kind of its own unique perspective, and it's it's its own unique way of experiencing things that exist in the universe, like physics, time, <laughs> obviously. And it, it communicates something very intuitive about this world that we live in that perhaps cannot be expressed any other way. So in that sense, I think at least people want to or believe that music is cosmic. <laughs> Yeah, I you know, and it's funny because I always struggle with how to explain this well to students. You know, when I put my music theorist hat on, it's really hard to say like, well, why why is music so effective? I mean, I, I, I often say music theory is the study of why music is awesome, right? And mm -hmm. my very short answer is generally to say, well, because it's magic. <laughs> and <laughs> it's funny because it's like we do know that music has these kind of rigorous underpinnings that describe the the acoustic phenomenon but then the actual process of making something that's artistically effective with sound is is uh, you know there's no there's there's really no no rules no laws about how that works and it's also a cop out i think to say like well the language of music is fundamentally abstract so you know and therefore this accumulation of cultural associations gives it meaning and blah 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 mm. i mean people have argued about this for for eons but i i find it ultimately a little bit unsatisfying maybe that's the scientist in me again like i don't know why music works mm -hmm. but it sure as hell does mm -hmm. and and it does so in ways that are incredibly profound and far-reaching. Yeah, agreed. And this is one reason why I initially found this idea of the quadrivium and this very prevalent idea that music is math, that music can be reduced to math. I always found that very unsatisfying because to me it did not even begin to explain how music has such a profound effect on people. Um, and actually, going back to that same book that I mentioned earlier, this kind of helped me understand two things about why I think this idea was so prevalent. Um, one, that in the kind of philosophical system that the Quadrivian developed in, number was also seen as having quality, not just quantity. And you can actually kind of intuitively understand this um, because, let's say, 
let's think about the number one versus the number two. Oneness is like wholeness. It is completeness. It is singularity. Whether whereas two, this can describe division or binariness or you know even conflict because now you no no longer have wholeness but you have um, a duality you know and and then you can see how certain numbers manifest in the world in nature I mean the number five we have five fingers um, you know going back to that five pointed star thing that Venus creates across the sky I mean. These things do have a kind of aesthetic quality as they manifest in different areas. And secondly, if people are trying to find a way of understanding an inherent order in the universe, because this was taken for granted, that the universe is an aesthetic object, basically, that has an underlying order. And math, you know, there's this famous article called the unreasonable efficiency of mathematics. Effectiveness. Effectiveness, that's it, that's it. (laughs) Um, how it it's a little bit bizarre how well number can apply to the natural world, right? And it's true. You can measure a lot of things, and it's still going to work. And so once they figured that out, it's like, okay, well, here it is. Now we have something that we can grasp onto that we can see manifest in all of these areas. This must be it. This is it. This is the underlying order, right? Yeah. I love that you you brought up this idea that of number as having a quality in addition to quantity because there's a fine there it does reveal kind of a, an important fine line right like there's this whole world of number symbolism which kind of is a response to that like you start saying well two can represent division or binary it doesn't have to I mean so there is mm-hmm. this kind of cultural layer that's kind of put on top of this idea of number mm-hmm. but this is part of why the quadrivium you know they were really smart because it is true that if you think about the nature of two-ness regardless like forget about symbolic associations just what is the nature of two-ness right that does that is that is a real thing that is the kind of thing that one can spend a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. right i mean and people still do I mean, everyone loves a good prime number, right? <laughs> everyone loves the the weird quirk of primes that you got two in there, mm-hmm. you know. So like, that's cool. There's something going on with the number two, right? From a from a from a you know quote purely mathematical perspective, mm-hmm. and and I think you know there's also it's it's also really smart because the the idea of studying number and thinking about number in and of itself. This is also part of why geometry. And the other, well, the geometry, music, and astronomy are different from arithmetic because, of course, they create space for more complex numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pythagoras had to do all kinds of. He had to convince himself of how to get to those complex numbers, uh, or not literally complex numbers, but but more complicated than. Speaking of complex, yeah. you're wearing a shirt with pi on it. Yeah, that was totally an accident, but also totally, <laughs> totally apropos here. Um, the simplest shape you have to use the, the most complicated, the most complicated <laughs> yeah. number to explain it. Right, right. But also, you know, the with number and this idea of connecting to the universe. I think people find comfort in that idea that number, it's like you're looking for order in the universe. It's really hard to put your finger on the magic of music, not to mention the structure of the universe. But if you can put numbers on things that suggests a way of connecting, right? It's a way of getting a handle on on stuff. Mm-hmm. 
stuff that you both can and cannot understand. Thank you.